In medieval art, it was common to depict the entrance to hell as the cavernous mouth of a, of a hideous monster. This depiction was called uh, the hell mouth or the jaws of hell, and it was very common in paintings of the Last Judgment, even in uh, theatrical plays depicting a scene of the Last Judgment throughout the Middle Ages. You know, I remember being a college student myself um, at KU and a professor bringing up this medieval depiction of the entrance to hell. And she said, this, uh, the church used these hell mouths as a way to manipulate and scare people into believing in Catholicism. I don't think I thought too much of this comment at 20 or 21, but in hindsight, you know, there's a, an unspoken assumption behind this criticism. And it's that the doctrines of the last judgment in hell are nothing more than fictional boogeymen, perhaps even invented by scheming churchmen to dupe others into practicing the faith. But there are two problems with this idea. First, the doctrines, the teachings about the last judgment and the existence of hell, these, whatever else they are, they're not man-made. They're divinely revealed. And we see two examples of that in our readings today. And secondly, while certainly to meditate on the last judgment is a sobering thing, it should not be, uh, the image of the last judgment that we have in our mind should not be one of terror, but of hope. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but first let's look at our readings. In our gospel, Jesus is actually speaking about two different events, very distinct events, that are interrelated. He is speaking, prophesying, on the one hand, about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which took place before that generation passed away in 70 AD, when the Romans besieged the city and left no stone, uh, left no stone on top of another. He's also speaking about the end of the age, when there'll be a time of great tribulation, and then the Son of Man will return. He'll return the second time in power, in glory, and majesty, whereas the first time he came in humility. And he'll return to judge the living and the dead. Now, how are these two events related? Well, the temple in Jerusalem was seen as like a microcosm of the universe, like a little universe itself. And so its destruction would point forward to the destruction of this universe, of this earth, at the end of the age. You know, Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. And he's saying this world, it won't last forever. That the last day of this universe, it will come and pass. But then he will bring about something new. A new heaven and a new earth a new and eternal Jerusalem. If we back up a little bit to our first reading, we get arguably the clearest teaching on the resurrection 
of the dead in the Old Testament from the book of the prophet Daniel. Daniel says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some shall live forever, others shall be in everlasting horror and disgrace. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth, the dead, buried, entombed, buried or entombed, and they will rise on the last day at the end of time. And after the resurrection of the dead is this last judgment, and then we will all receive our eternal reward. As Daniel says, some shall live forever, which can only describe heaven. And he also tells us that some shall be an everlasting horror and disgrace, which can only describe hell. These are just two scripture passages, examples showing that these doctrines aren't the invention of villainous clergy, but that they're revealed by God, that they're revealed through the words of his prophet Daniel and through God incarnate, Jesus Christ, God who cannot deceive nor be deceived. Nonetheless, somebody could still object. It's a terrifying prospect the idea of punishment that doesn't end. How can this not be something that causes horror within us? And I'll admit this, the last judgment shows that we are responsible for our lives, that we are responsible for accepting or rejecting the gift of grace and salvation God offers us. It reminds us, the last judgment does, that the choices we make or don't make, the actions we do or don't do, they have consequences. On this last day, we'll be asked to give an account for how we lived our life. What will the criterion be? Well, two weeks ago, Jesus gave us that when he gave the two great commandments. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You must love your neighbor as yourself. St. John of the Cross said almost 500 years ago, in the twilight of our life, we will be judged by love, by how much we've loved God, how much we've loved our neighbor. So I would say it shouldn't paralyze us with fear, the last judgment. It's a sober reminder of the responsibility we have over our life. And the church reminds us this time of year in November as we transition into Advent. The church reminds us of the last things, the last judgment, to encourage us to repent, to seek God's mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation, especially while we still have time. Okay, great. It's sobering. It's a reminder of our responsibility. I don't see hope in any, anything you've said so far, and fair enough. But the reason the last judgment, first and foremost, we ought to see is something that gives us hope is because this world, in this world, there is very real injustice, very real suffering and evil. And this terrible suffering, evil, injustice, it can only be put up with insofar as we have hope that there is a God who is capable of righting every wrong, 
of rectifying every injustice and crowning every innocent suffering with the consolation of Christ. The last judgment corresponds to a basic human desire to see full and perfect justice accomplished and realized forever. So often in this life and throughout history, true justice is elusive. Maybe we get close, but we can't ever quite grasp it. And it's only once we realize how feeble are our attempts to create a truly just society then we appreciate the need we have for Christ to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, to judge societies and nations, and to pronounce the final word on human history and to right every wrong. So we must make the hope of the last judgment our own. And we do that uh, in two ways. First, when we encounter injustice, suffering, evil, in life, we cannot let it make us cynical, scornful, cannot allow it to harden our hearts. Yes, there is evil, injustice, suffering in this world. We've all experienced it to one degree or another. We all just have to turn on the news to see it. But the last judgment reminds us that our heaven is not this earth, and that our God will come one day to right every wrong, and more than that, to show us exactly why he allowed this or that suffering, evil, injustice in our life, and the good that he brought out of it. That's the first way we make this hope our own. We don't let the evil of this world make us cynical. We hang on to this firm belief that God will come to make it right on the last day. The second way that we make the hope of the last judgment our own is to desire heaven, desire eternal life. And even more than that, to be confident that God will give us every grace necessary, everything we need to get to heaven. Does that sound presumptuous? Maybe, but it's not presumptuous. Because the reason for our hope is God's goodness. His omnipotence, that nothing's impossible for him. And above all else, his fidelity. He keeps his promises. He cannot deceive nor be deceived, so let us put our hope in him. And let us pray that the hope of the last judgment guides us through this life through the trials of this life. And let us pray that we make this hope our own so that we can pray with Christians down through the ages, come, Lord Jesus. We can pray that from the depths of our heart and really mean it.